Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation. I'm your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson. Hazel Savage luckily was on vacation in the States, so we were able to have a same time zone conversation instead of her home country presently of Singapore. She shared how Museo got started a couple of years ago and how it already has a unique and distinctive role in clearing up and tagging mass music data sets. She'll talk about how that's different than generative artificial intelligence, how AI is different than or is a broader conversation around machine learning, talk about algorithms in business, and talk about what's happening kind of on the edges of the music industry that also is tied in with all sorts of big data. So please enjoy the podcast and listen to the stories of starting a new music tech company in Singapore. I am fascinated looking at your background journey to getting to this spot. Can you maybe give us a short version, because we're going to spend a lot of time talking about it, on what Museo is and how in the world you decided to get it started? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So Museo, we call ourselves an artificial intelligence company for the music industry. And more specifically, what myself and my co-founder do is we've combined our skills, myself having a background in the music industry and him being, you know, a, a talented uh, technical guy with like 17 years experience. And we thought, how can we bring the very latest in deep technology or cutting edge technology into an industry that famously hasn't always you know been right at the forefront of what's possible uh, with previous development so that was kind of where the idea for Museo came from and my co-founder is uh, brilliant uh, at building artificial intelligence and it really came from the idea when he and I started working together of I just asked him a very straightforward question you know could AI listen to music? Is it possible to teach an AI to listen to music? And then if you think about how much music there is in the world these days, you know, I think Spotify say they get 40,000 new tracks a day. You know, SoundCloud has something like 72 hours worth of music uploaded every minute. If this is the kind of volume that we're at on the artist side, how do we help the industry to scale? And that was the idea of teaching the AI to listen to music and how we can use AI as an efficiency tool and bring the music industry up to speed. So that's really that's really what Museo does and where we started from. And then, of course, that translates more directly into products such as automated tagging, uh, audio reference search, you know, being able to search a catalog of 200,000 tracks in two seconds using, a, using an MP3 as a reference and also fully automating uh, personalized playlists for streaming services so that's kind of you know how we how we started and then how we came came to the idea of what we do today so you started this your background itself has been anything from working in classical music if i'm understanding it correctly as well as working in retail and as well as working for shazam you've got a really interesting spectrum of music experience that you're bringing to this adventure. Can you share a little more on that? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, I started out, I was studying politics at university. And the whole time that I was there, I was just, I was playing in bands, you know, I was 
playing guitar in like an all-girl punk band and I always saw music as the thing I did in my spare time and that you know I fully imagined that I'd study this very sort of academic degree and then I'd go on and get a job in in who knows what and whilst I was at university I started working in a record store part-time HMV and you know once I finished uni that just you know hey would they ask would I like to go full-time so yes I did and then I transferred down to the, the London branch of HMV um, and the job was in classical music which at the time I, I didn't really know anything about at 22 but that was the job they had going so I figured well I know the job I know how to do everything else I can I can learn the, the genre and so off I went to London and you know that was really the very start of my career working in music you know something that I'd always thought would be just you know part-time then turned into well actually this is what I do you know this is all I've ever done it's what I'm interested in it's what I'm passionate about and it kind of became the full-time job which I don't think while I was at university I was really aware was uh, an option or a possibility um so that was that was great and that was really how I started out and then I was just very lucky that while I was at HMV, I applied for a few of the roles. Um, and one was for a company that a really small company that at the time very few people had heard of called Shazam, because it was a UK only company. And uh, basically, yeah, I just um, sent my CV off. And I was very lucky that the guy that reviewed my CV that ended up hiring me had also worked at HMV previously. So he said when he saw HMV on me, my CV, he went, oh, she'll be a last she'll be good fun uh, because you know HMV had a <laughs> reputation for fun <coughs> she'll fun be part, fun not, not brilliant or uh sophisticated but fun yeah oh she'll be fun because I guess you know you had to be pretty extrovert and pretty you know a huge music fan to get a job at, at HMV at the time so you know the fact that he saw that on my CV and thought oh she'll be a kind of a like-minded colleague and then just got me in for the interview and, and the rest is history so I'll say but you know when I joined to them it was I think I was like about employee number 25 it was a, a really small company UK only no one no one had heard of it no one really knew what it was but um I would say now it's still still the job that I get asked about the most still the one everyone wants to wants to hear about you know and then you stayed from there in kind of a marketing hat but from a bunch of different lenses. So I find that fascinating that you're bringing that set of lenses as well to this company. So you did all sorts of interesting things across several different music companies. You've got a nice vocabulary there. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I really, I really started out at Shazam, you know, I was one of the people who put the music on the system, um, which was kind of a quite a process and data driven role. Um, but then, you know, I, I remember, you know, a, a real turning point for me was I was still very embedded in like the local music scene in London. And I was I was a performing artist at the same time. And I, I you know, so I was hanging out with lots of different, you know, journalists and PR companies. And they would always be like, hey, you know, did, does Shazam want to interview this artist? Do you guys want to have a, an interview or a video session with these guys? And I started getting all these offers and I kind of just put it together in my brain that you know there was an opportunity there so I, I remember I we were still that size company where I could just you know knock on the door walk into the to the CEO's room and be like hey um we're getting a lot of offers from artists to come in and perform for us uh is that something we'd ever be interested in and uh, the CEO at the time Andrew Fisher was like yeah you know here's a budget make it happen and that was really how I went from you know just 
being on the data side of things to putting together like a live content offering, uh, you know, the Shazam sessions that we were doing uh, way back in the day. And, you know, then obviously taking it from, you know, booking the artist to getting them into perform to editing the video to, you know, making sure it went up online and, and was shared across all the various channels, you know, it's kind of a, um, a little bit of a one-stop shop. Um, and I kind of expanded that role into, into what they call marketing, but, you know, I was never kind, I never studied marketing um, at university. And, you know, for me, it was just, it was just part of what you did, but you know, that, that then became, you know, content marketing was this huge, there was a huge explosion and everyone was talking about, you know, content and video marketing. And it was something I just kind of fell into more from uh, sort of having a natural aptitude for it, but also just, it, it meant that I was working closely with the artists. So I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to cut ahead because you've got great experience, which we'll have in the show notes as well. But you ended up then going to Australia and then to Singapore. And we tend to talk to a lot of companies here that are US-based or maybe UK-based mm -hmm. or maybe Berlin-based. How did you end up in Singapore? How did you meet Aaron? And how did you really get your feet into launching Musio? Absolutely. So, well, the short version is that as I was, after I was working in London, I got headhunted to go and work for Universal in Australia. And, you know, it was, a, it was a, such an opportunity that I couldn't turn it down. And then I was in Australia for five years. And that's when I worked for Pandora as well. And then I also, then I got headhunted to work for a company in Singapore. Um, and the way I've always described it is the marketing roles that I've been in are niche enough, you know, music technology, marketing roles in like anywhere from like startup to scale up size companies. They're, the jobs are slightly rarer than the people are. So I really, I'll, I'll move wherever it's needed for the opportunity. And so, yeah, moved to Australia, then moved to Singapore. And then after, um, I've been in Singapore for about three and a half years now. And after a couple of years in Singapore, I thought, well, you know, what's next? I've been doing, uh, you know, kind of music industry and marketing for about 12 years now. Um, so, you know, do I take another job? You know, I was sort of interviewing for like a, a head of marketing role at a streaming service or you know do I try something different and I think I'd always thought that I would start my own company I just never really you know I guess I was actually kind of waiting to for an idea to come to me but it turns out that's not really how it works so what I actually I was contacted by a startup incubator called Entrepreneur First EF and they said, yep, you know, we're looking for, you know, exceptional individuals who've either got a lot of domain experience or technical experience and uh, to join our program. And, you know, I, so I thought, right, let's give this a go. So I joined the incubator and that's where I met my co-founder, Aaron. And so, again, he is not someone we always say we're not someone, you know, we're not a pair of people who would have met naturally within life, very different interests a very different circles he's Swedish and I'm English but we met through the incubator and you know had a had a great rapport and a great working relationship and really were able to forge our two very disparate industries to form a really interesting company so that's kind of the short version and his superpower has been <coughs> AI for a while yes yeah, he's been, I mean, he's been coding for 17 years. Uh, he's been experimenting with AI for 15 years. Um, I think he, 
started with Quake 2, where you could actually hack the game yourself and, and use really, really basic AI to be able to uh, teach the character what's a door and what isn't a door. And I'm told it was it was a resounding failure as well, in that every time the, the game character <laughs> would walk into a corner, it was convinced the corner was a door and it would just keep walking repeatedly into the corner. So, but you know, that was that was the early days of uh, AI. We're talking 15 years ago. So, and, and he's been he's been doing it ever since. So, you know, he's worked largely in the gaming space, um, uh, building a, an online multiplayer in his previous company, and then also um, managing uh, large online gaming uh, backend services for for big companies in Europe. So, so yeah, he you know we developed a shorthand very quickly because. You know, gaming is is based on other industries. It's not a million miles away from the music industry. It's all entertainment based. Uh, so yeah, so we sort of developed a, a really good working rapport very quickly. Um, and so I just met him in uh, January 2018. So we've known each other um, just over a year and a half. Are you a gamer at all? And is he a music person at all? Uh, I, yeah, that's an interesting question. I've not been asked that one, but no, I am. Well, I would say I'm not a gamer. Um, you know, I don't, I don't own a console. Um, and I, I don't really uh, play games on my phone at all. I'm, I'm more of a social media obsessive. You know, I've, I've got an account on everything and I check them all, you know, every, every 30 minutes. Um, and Aaron, actually Aaron is a huge fan of, uh, European metal. So Swedish metal, um, black metal, that kind of stuff he loves, but he's not, uh, you know, he's not, you know, like I am, he's not worked in the industry before. He's not, you know, cross genre, you know, multiple industry uh, aficionados. So we're quite different in that way. But, you know, what the other doesn't have, uh, we sort of, that's what we bring to the relationship. So we've talked about here on the show and I've run into in the wild, a good number of companies that are saying they're working on music and AI and everyone seems to be either uh, going in totally different directions or not necessarily yet doing AI but having an AI-like approach. So when you guys came to trying to meld the two, mm. where did you see were the low-hanging fruit and where did you see there was competition, direction? How did you kind of scope out what was needed in a very data-messy business? Oh, yeah, really good point there. You just kind of summed it all up in that question. I think, you know, one of the first things we did was identify that, you know, if you search the term online, like music AI, you know, I would say the majority of the companies that you're looking at are in what we call the generative AI space. So people who are using AI to write music. So there are a lot of companies out there who are doing either sync music or music for gaming or, you know, another element of the industry where they're using artificial intelligence to compose. And then, so that's quite a large section of the industry and not the section that we're in. And then on the other side of it, we, we sort of describe ourselves as the curatorial side. So generative versus curatorial. So using AI to be able to sort and manage and curate these large volumes of data and so I've, I've I mean I won't go into it in too much detail but I've spoken extensively previously on uh, AI generated music and you know I've kind of um, put my put my uh, flag on the map so to speak as not a fan of, of these particular um, innovations I, I personally have yet to hear a AI generated piece of music that I actually think is good that I think is 
better or even comparable to something that a that a person would write and i and i also am a strong believer that ai is an efficiency tool it can be used to manage things at large scale and in large volumes and it can do a lot of rote and repetitive work but it doesn't really do those things better than a human being so where ai then has its advantage is when it can do it at scale so for example, Musio's AI can, inverted commas, listen to a million tracks a day, and it can categorize a million tracks a day by genre, by BPM, by mood, by energy. Um, the average human in an eight hour workday, if they're lucky, could listen to 200. So if you're talking about the difference between you know, 200 songs a day or a million a day, we obviously offer a level of efficiency and scale that it's not manually possible to do. However, when it comes to writing a piece of music, if you give a human eight hours a day and you give an AI eight hours a day and they both produce a piece of music, the human's music is better in every example I've ever heard. And so it's not really creating an efficiency. You know, I'm not really hearing a lot of people say, oh, I wish, you know, I wish there was, you know, I'm so bored of writing music. It's so hard to get anyone to do it. Nobody wants to do it. You know, it's not, I, I often look at, you know, music AI in that kind of demand space. And I think companies that are working in the generative space, I'm not quite sure I, f I see the demands that they're filling. Um, and I also, I'm not quite sure they're there with accuracy, but luckily for us, we're in that kind of curatorial space where we're just using scale. And we're using scale to assist the human elements of the industry that already exist. So that's kind of how I how I view it a little bit differently to some of some of the other companies. And as you pointed out as well, um, one of the other big challenges that we have is there are a lot of companies out there using the term AI who are actually possibly just using some rather basic algorithms or even um, you know adding an element, uh, just one small element of their process. And it's not a true use of AI. So, you know, often we've been competing for business uh, with, with our customers against other companies. And, you know, we could be, you know, what in one particular instance, we were measured against 20 other companies. It turned out about 14 of them were just basic algorithms that were immediately dismissed and then of the ones that were remaining you know we ultimately won the business based on our accuracy and the the sort of level that our ai works at above what other people currently have um, but it, it makes it a challenge because there are a lot of other companies that that want to be in this space and that claim to have what we have so it's it's more of a challenge from a business perspective than anything else i think well, let me stop us here, Hazel, and back up half a step because <laughs> this actually highlights one of the big challenges, which is the what is artificial intelligence and how does it differ from algorithms? And we actually might have to stop and define what an algorithm is because I think that we tend to throw these things around mm. so blithely, uh, but I've run into other companies who do have a significant amount of AI under the hood mm. and they're competing for business with people who've got um, uh, battalions of human beings uh, tucked in various places actually doing the work that is being labeled yeah. as AI. But, yeah. but let's back up. So an algorithm versus artificial intelligence is what for the layman? Yeah. Okay. So if I, if I could just start and I'll define um, artificial intelligence because I often you know, when I, when I present at various music conferences, have to define 
AI specifically. Um, and that's because a lot of people will hear the term AI, artificial intelligence and ML, which is short for machine learning. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to use the two interchangeably, but there is a difference. So the way that I describe it is that artificial intelligence is the concept. It's the broader, almost, you know, sci-fi film or novel way of thinking about how you get a machine to replicate something that looks like a human's done it. So something that appears to have intelligence, but it's actually just a computer. So AI as a, as a broad term, it's more, it's more, it's a big catch-all term. It's more sci-fi, you know, it can be anything from like a chatbot that seems to be, you think you might be talking to another human. That's artificial intelligence because it's kind of, it, it's tricking you into thinking that you're talking to a human. It, it's seeming to be intelligent, but actually it's not. It's just a, it's a computer program. So AI as a broad scope encompasses anything that replicates an element of intelligence. But machine learning or ML is actually a more accurate definition of what we do. And when I say that, that means we take large sets of data, um, in this case, audio, and we train the computer what certain features look like and what certain data sets look like. And then the machine learns by rote, by repetition, what these things are, and then it's able to spot them again. You know, so if I give uh, a, a machine, a computer, 5,000 songs with, uh, that are all rock, rock music, and I say to the AI or the machine, I say, here's 5,000 songs, they're all rock. And then we, we teach the computer repeatedly again and again, this is what rock music is. Then the next time we show it a new song, it's able to say if it's rock music or not, because it's learned, the machine has learned by repetition what certain things are. So Musio is actually, it's a machine learning model. However, AI is a more popular term and it's a more catch-all term. So I tend to use them relatively interchangeably. In our instance, it, it is true, but it, you know, they are, you know, when AI is such a broad scope definition, you could almost apply it to anything. But companies that specifically use machine learning, that's, that's very different. Does that kind of explanation between those two make sense? I think so. And then to me, algorithms then are that the algorithm has to be predefined, that someone has set the patterns in place that are the filters that they're putting a bunch of data against. But then machine learning is taking those patterns and make it adaptable, that these all are under a definition. What, what are then the patterns that seem to replicate it that aren't pre-done filters? And that's it. And so, with, so, so that's why I didn't directly go into compare an algorithm to, to the AI that we do, because we use algorithms as well. You know, anyone working in a computing industry or technology industry probably has to use algorithms because the algorithm is just a process or a set of rules to be followed, the calculation that the computer is solving. And so basically, you can do machine learning and then have it processed via an AI. So say, for example, the, the previous example I gave before, where when I give the computer, you know, 5,000 rock songs and I teach it, this is what a rock song looks like. The machine learning is the, is the element of where it's processing the, the audio and it's learning that this is what rock is. But the way that we put the 5,000 songs into an order, into a computer, probably uses an algorithm. And then the rate at which we pull out results and we say, okay, AI, now take a look at this new song. Is it rock or is it not rock? 
there is an algorithm to determine whether this new song fits the pattern or not. So you never truly don't use algorithms, but the core brain, you know, the neural network, the piece right in the middle is the, is the machine learning, but almost everything around it, how the data comes in, how the data comes out will all be based on algorithms. So, you know, I never say it's, it's one or the other, but you know, whether a company is, is just using that set of rules and processes to, you know, identify tracks and calling it AI, or whether there is a true, a true machine learning brain at the middle, that's, that seems to be the core difference. So the folks who benefit from having a robust um, machine learning solution are generally not just doing that. And I'm thinking that, is it somebody who is looking for these type of tools to put inside of a different process or that they're looking to have this as an attribute of a service they're providing to a broad range of companies? Are you kind of the intel inside of other people's products or are you a, uh, uh, let's say temporal solution, a, a time-based solution to fix a specific problem? Uh, so we actually do both because a lot of our customers are, are enterprise. So we have certain customers. Uh, we have a customer, for example, who has a large set of music. We're talking over a million tracks. And it's come from databases they've acquired uh, over the years, all over the place, that have all been you know, tagged and organized to a different degree. And so they're looking for consistency in their catalog, and they're looking for standardization. Now, to manually tag a million tracks is, it's a huge undertaking. I think we calculated if you were to do it manually with the team that they had, with the volume of how quickly a human can tag a piece of music, you're talking about probably about six years worth of work. Um, we can process that audio in one day. So again, that's where the efficiency, where we can take a whole job lot of music and we can do a process and then we can give it back to them and they can carry on their, on their merry way. Or we can actually sell the solution, like you say, as an integral part to someone else's service. So a streaming service we work with who, until we started working with them, they were not offering any personalized playlists. And I think, you know, for a um, Spotify or a YouTube user yourself, you know, if you think about when you come to any of these stream services and you, you, you know, you go to play, uh, you, you maybe play an hour's worth of music and you've searched a few artists, the next time you come back to that service, you expect to see recommendations based on what you've listened to. Maybe it's just pick up where you left off. Maybe it's, oh, you listen to, you know, X artist, here's their new album. You know, you expect to see those kind of recommendations come back. You don't expect to go straight back to the homepage of, you know, default pop playlists, which might not be, you know, if you've listened to classical music for an hour, would not be what you're interested in. So the ability to offer recommendations based on, you know, for every single individual user, based on what every single individual user has listened to, we can do that at scale. So we can listen to what they listen to, we can listen to entire catalogs, and then we can serve up recommendations. So, you know, think about the way, you know, when you're on YouTube, that column of videos appear down the right hand side. Now, YouTube says 70% of all their consumption is done by people clicking a video in that right hand column, because it's related to the video that you're listening to and obviously it's not manually possible to curate that for every single YouTube user so there's a large element of AI in, in all of these type of recommendation products so you guys have 
a unique solution or a unique approach or a unique set of relationships? Um, so the way I would describe it is I think that when it comes to the type of artificial intelligence we're doing, I think Spotify definitely have their own solution. Um, and I think they are really the music company that are at the cutting edge of what's possible. You know, if you think about when you go to Spotify, you go to their daily mixes or you go to their weekly discovery, there is an element of, of, a, of, of an AI that's being used to curate that for each user. Uh, how similar it is to our process, it's impossible to know. You know, I've never, I've never worked there and they don't disclose their technology exactly. Um, but it, it feels very similar. And, you know, so, so what I say is, and, and YouTube the same. I think actually YouTube's is a little less, a little less accurate. It's probably more based on data and just play counts and, and, and genre tags, but it's, you know, given their volume and their scale, it's, it's pretty good. So I would say a couple of those really big players um, are doing something similar that they've probably built in house. However, most companies do not have access to the technology we have. So where we're different, where we're unique is that we're offering a white labeled version. You know, if you, if you want to have personalized recommend play, recommended playlists for 8 million active users, we can supercharge that for you. We can let you use our AI technology to bring that level of uh, personalization that you see across the world's best streaming services. Um, and so we work with telcos who have streaming services. We work with streaming services across Southeast Asia, China, um, Europe, America. We also work with sync companies. And again, you know, uh, synchronization companies who probably, again, are not going to have the resource to, to build something like this themselves in-house. We attach our technology to their catalog and kind of supercharge what they already have. So that's really where we're different. To the best of my knowledge, there are no other curatorial AI companies that have the power that we have, that have the accuracy, that have the scale, um, and that are able to do what we say we do. Um, but I do believe that most likely Spotify have the closest in technology and they have it in-house. But that means, you know, it's not available for anyone else. So again, that's where, where we come in. How about on video? Do you also use your superpowers for video data and curation? So interestingly, yeah, we've been asked that a few times. I mean, it's possible, you know, the same technology would work to be able to, you know, curate a streaming service such as Netflix or, or Hulu or HBO. Um, however, you know, as a, as a company that's just over a year old, um, you know, we started with the music industry because that's where my expertise is. Uh, but, you know, as we think about growing the company, expanding, it may well be that we move into video but you know we're, we're trying to focus at the minute and, and be very good at this first section of, of the industry I was gonna say and then podcasts you can do work on no because podcasts actually are an interesting oh, bleeding edge of lack of tagging and data yeah so actually yeah, podcast is a fascinating area i mean actually our existing ai can already differentiate between uh, music and spoken word so if you literally if you were a service that was having you know user generated content uploaded on a daily basis and you just wanted to know whether it was music or whether it was um 
whether it was spoken word, a podcast, uh, probably for reconciling uh, royalty payments or even just to categorize uh, music with music and, and podcasts with podcasts. We already have an AI that can do that. And actually, if you go to our website, museo.com, and you hit the uh, try the tagging demo, you can upload uh, a piece of music or, uh, you know, we can tell you if it's music or spoken words. So that's one of the that's one of the existing functions that we already have. Um, I think to dig a layer deeper, you know, to be able to then say, you know, what is the content of the podcast? If we're, you know, how do we group together the podcast now thematically? Um, again, you know, based on this idea of machine learning, all you really need is a data set large enough. You know, if I have 5,000 podcasts uh, about health and then I have 5,000 podcasts about uh, science, you know, you should be able to train the AI theoretically um, the difference between the two and then have an accuracy rating of 90% plus um, when we show it a new podcast to say whether it's health or whether it's science. So uh, it does work the same way. But, you know, we are actually, I think, I think, as you say, it's slightly newer industry. So we haven't had as many requests in that space. But yeah, it's possible. So you seem to have covered a lot of ground in a short period of time. What has been your biggest surprise in working with the music industry in this area? And how have you dealt with those surprises? Um, okay, so I would say a little bit maybe the thing that surprised me the most is that actually it's still a relatively slow-moving industry. Um, and I say slow move in that, you know, we're a new technology that come along and, you know, other people claim to have done what we've done before and failed. And, and so I understand there's a little bit of a reluctance from, from the industry to embrace it wholeheartedly until it's kind of proven. But the challenge then is, is you know, if, if everyone's waiting for someone else to make the move, it, it means it, it's a challenge for us as small business. Um, however, we found a few, you know, really initial partners who, you know, trialed it, you know, believed in it themselves without needing to see it from someone else. And, you know, we've moved forward that way. But I think I think I was surprised, you know, based on the way the music industry um, handled, you know, the emergence of downloads and then handled the emergence of streaming. I thought they'd be a quicker off the mark um, with. AI, but there's, there's, I think the industry has a has an integral, you know, element of risk aversion, which again I think would surprise a lot of people about the music industry. You know, everyone thinks, oh, you know, it's dancing on tabletops and you know, it's I don't know, coke and hookers or, or whatever the old uh, major label, you know, um, reputation was. But it's actually a very conservative industry, and. Uh, I think I knew that, but I, I think I'm always surprised afresh at just how conservative it can be. I think I'm missing totally the dancing on tabletops part. <laughs> Me too. I don't know where that's happening. I just have heard about it, but I've not seen any of it. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the fact that you now are in the United States on actually a personal adventure, and but normally are in Singapore. What What's the magic and the benefit of being in Singapore in this day and age and how does it help or provide challenges for your business? Yeah, so 
interestingly, you know, when we first formed the company, you know, Aaron and I were both already living in Singapore, so it made a lot of sense. And Singapore is a hugely friendly place to build a business. I have to say that, you know, there are there are visas, especially for entrepreneurs. Uh, it's very easy to to kind of get started. The tax rates are very pro business. So it, it is a great place to build a company. But when we were, you know, raising our first round of seed funding, the, a lot of the investors would be like, why on earth are you guys in Singapore? You know, there is a huge music tech scene in, in LA. There's a huge music tech scene in, 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 Ed, in London. You know, why do you guys want to be in Singapore? No one else is there. And you know what? It's true. When we raised our, our first seed round of, of uh, 1 million USD, um, you know, we became the first VC-backed music tech company in Singapore ever. You know, there are no other VC-backed, you know, music tech companies. It's not known for this vertical in any way, shape or form. And, you know, partly that makes it a challenge. Um, I have to say, you know, most of our customers are, you know, all around Asia or US or UK. However, Singapore's a hub. You know, I can get to anywhere from anywhere you know, coming from Singapore. And so for me, it's a great place to be based. And also, you know, being the first of its kind company in Singapore has advantages. You know, we've gotten a lot of attention, uh, which is never a bad thing as a, as a new business because we are new and we're new in the area. And we've also, you know, managed to hire the best people. You know, we've, we, you know, we really, we're not going up against, you know, you know, 10 other smart, savvy, fast, music startups in Silicon Valley, you know, it's either, you know, in a lot of cases, work in fintech or work for a bank or, or hey, there's this cool music company. So we've been able to attract an incredibly high caliber of talent, which I don't think we could have got exactly the same if we'd have been in one of the much more crowded areas. And then the other benefit to it is that, you know, we're so close to China mm -hmm. um, and that we've had a lot of uh, relationships and customers and, and pilots that are running around Southeast Asia and in China. And, you know, when they hear that we're based in Singapore, they, they love it. There's a high level of trust there for a company that's working in the same region that they are. That often, you know, when I speak to companies in Europe, they say, you know, companies in Europe are like, well, there's Spotify, there's Apple and Google and what else? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, don't talk to me about Tencent with the biggest streaming service in the world. Don't talk to me about, you know, Jukes and, you know, all the big streaming services, KKBox, you know, uh, Line Music, you know, uh, Amazon in, in Japan. You know, they just, companies in Europe, they miss out on all of this because they're, they're not there to kind of experience alongside it. So I would say on balance, you know, a lot of people did question why we would be in Singapore. But on balance, I, I think it's a really great place to be. And, and I'm, I'm sort of very happy to be sort of leading the charge for music technology in Singapore. So from your unique perch, you are hanging out near or at the bleeding edge in some ways. What companies outside of AI are you seeing that you're really excited about in music and technology? Um, so, well, so I get to go, I still get to go to all the conferences like uh, Medem and South by Southwest. Um, and, you know, I, I, I read all of the music press because I'm always super interested in what are the companies are doing and, you know, who's operating what, who's raising money, who's, you know, who's built a really phenomenal product. I think one I'm a huge fan of is Lander. So uh, that's L-A-N-D-R. And they are automated mastering. 
Um, so I, you know, they've been going for a few years, but I think they just raised a massive uh, Series B round. And I think they've got such a slick product. It works phenomenally. And I really like the way they position their business. I think that's really impressive. They're maybe a slightly more well-known company. Um, in terms of the kind of the real cutting edge space, you know, I was lucky enough to, when I was at uh, Medem Labs at Medem earlier this year, there's a really exciting little app called Jamble. Uh, J-A-M-B-L and it's kind of like a, a, a it's it's actually in the generative space but it's kind of more like a game so it's a fun little you know that I met the founder he opened his phone he was demoing me the product you know within 30 seconds we've collaborated on a track you know and that in 10 more seconds it's up on Instagram um, and I just, you know, I'm not sure I see it as a kind of a, it's a B2C, it's not a, it's not a pure industry play, but it, it had something fun about it that I really liked. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, there's two just off the top of my head. And a lot of it is that there's beginning to be more and more tech under the hood for so many things that are now considered normal operating parts of the music business. So it's, mm. it's interesting to see so much continuing to change. We're about the end of our conversation. Anything you would like to mention that we haven't talked about? Um, well, just the only other thing I would say uh, for anyone listening, um, we actually do have an AI on our website that anyone is welcome to go and try. So if you just go to museo.com, um, you can copy and paste a YouTube link or upload a track and it will automatically using AI tag that piece of music for you live on our website. And I think we're the only one that have a kind of a, a little DIY AI feature like that. So for anyone listening who's interested, I would fully encourage you to go and try it. Works on web and mobile. And the type of tagging on it is? Oh, we do BPM, genre, mood, spectrum, balance. Uh, I think about eight different categories. It's it's kind of our most basic version, but you know we got it up on the website as a as a real nice sort of dip your toe in the water for anyone in the industry who just wants to see see what it's about. And if someone would like to get a hold of you, how would they best get a hold of you? Uh, easy to as well on on the website. I think we have a contact email. We have a contact form. Um, so yeah, anyone's welcome to go to museo.com. That's m-u-s-i-i-o.com, and all our contact details are there. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and I look forward to watching your continuing adventures. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Well, that wraps up this podcast. Many thanks to the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation for being our hosts of this ongoing series. You can subscribe to us in all the usual places, or you can come find us at innovation.schoolofmusic.ucla.edu. Join us again to follow the other adventures that we will be tracking down in innovating music. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.